Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for September 9th, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardell, and I'm very excited to welcome you to this week's edition of our program, your source each Friday for insightful analysis from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on salient appellate developments. This week's show considers two major cases of appellate importance, both yet to be decided. One is a California Supreme Court matter regarding take-home asbestos liability, which heard oral arguments on Wednesday. Another awaits arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court during that body's upcoming term and considers the due process afforded non-citizens detained awaiting potential deportation. We'll also hear briefly from our Labor Beat reporter Matthew Blake on a Ninth Circuit ruling of national prominence from this week regarding a class action brought against ride-sharing giant Uber. First, MC Sangaila will discuss the consolidated appeal Haver v. BNSF Railway, which was argued before the state's high court on Wednesday and which asked the question whether employers in workplaces that contain toxic substances, such as asbestos, owe a duty to workers' family members or others they contact who are exposed to those toxic materials when they're conveyed home upon the workers' clothing. Plaintiffs in both these matters contracted diseases after repeated contact with family members who were employed in workplaces where asbestos was present. One of the plaintiffs met a favorable result in the California 1st Appellate District, which found that the employer there did have a duty to that class of family member plaintiffs. But in the other action consolidated in this appeal, the 2nd Appellate District found no duty in very similar circumstances. California Supreme Court is now set to weigh in after having heard both sides on Wednesday. Then... Anna Rose Matheson will return to the show to continue our summer SCOTUS preview series. Today, she'll discuss Rodriguez v. Jennings, a significant immigration law case that regards the critical issue of what sorts of due process must be afforded detained non-citizens who await removal determinations. These detainees, though only subjects of civil removal proceedings, nonetheless are often held in conditions quite similar to those that typically attend criminal convictions and have not necessarily been entitled to judicial hearings to determine whether they could be released from these oft-squalid confines to await a final determination as to whether they can or cannot remain in the country. The Ninth Circuit upheld a permanent injunction requiring that such detainees automatically receive regular hearings once every six months, in which the government must prove by clear and convincing evidence that the risk of releasing detainees is high enough to justify the denial of their bond. In its appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, the government contends that this evidentiary standard represents too heavy a burden and that repeated bond hearings after the first one are not constitutionally necessary. But before we hear from our guests, I'd like to first introduce our labor reporter, Matthew Blake wrote a story in Thursday's paper about a major Ninth Circuit ruling filed Wednesday that's being regarded as a major win for Uber in both that instant class action and in another prominent misclassification action against the company that's pending. Matthew Blake, our labor reporter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brian. Folks have regarded this ruling as a relatively major win for Uber. Uh, why is that? What, what did this ruling entail? So it was a pretty major win for Uber. The Ninth Circuit panel said that the company's arbitration agreements in 2013 and 2014 were actually valid, which reverses multiple rulings that San Francisco Judge Edward Chen had made at the end of last year. And so Basically, what this means is that Uber had all of its drivers sign these contracts to individually arbitrate any disputes they had with Uber. The drivers could opt out of individually arbitrating disputes, but from what we know, only about 6% of the drivers did opt out. So what that means is Uber is now able to confront 
been many, many lawsuits against the company through individual arbitration instead of a public class action lawsuit. So this is important um, for both the case before the Ninth Circuit, which dealt with Uber doing background checks of its drivers, but it's also, of course, very important for the larger case about whether Uber drivers should be employees or independent contractors. Now this class is trimmed down quite a bit, perhaps up to 94%. The folks are certainly free, as you say, to bring individual arbitration claims, but is the idea that a large majority of them won't have the time or the expertise or the financial resources to, to do so? That's very unclear right now. I talked with Shannon Liss Reardon, who's the plaintiff lawyer for the misclassification case, and she was saying that the drivers could potentially flood arbitrators with individual claims. She was saying that the class of California Uber drivers she represents might be able to get 1,500 people to individually file arbitration claims. And so it would be this kind of subversion of the individual arbitration system from her point of view. Another thing that the plaintiffs could do in this case is just push forward on their representative Private Attorney General's Act claims, which means that they would try to get labor code penalties from Judge Chen. Under the Scanian decision, they can continue to do a representative action despite signing an arbitration agreement through PAGA, and nobody quite is sure what that would practically mean, but it could mean that Judge Chen would award millions of dollars in back pay for missing overtime for expense mileage reimbursement if Judge Judge Chen, who has been favorable to the plaintiffs in this case, were, were to rule that the Uber drivers uh, were, were in fact employees and not independent contractors. You mentioned the idea of a PAGA waiver. That was the basis upon which the district judge had invalidated these arbitration agreements right before the Ninth Circuit then reinstated them, saying that arbitration agreements that stipulated that employees waived their right to bring PAGA actions were unenforceable and in this instance, the fact that this arbitration agreement had a PAGA waiver meant that it was unenforceable and, and that PAGA waiver could not be severed. Why wasn't that persuasive to the Ninth Circuit panel? It seems like it came down to simply not really an, an analysis of the case law regarding arbitration and, and more of a reading of these arbitration agreements. As you pointed out, what Judge Chen said is that you're saying in this agreement that any representative claim, including a PAGA claim, cannot be brought and is not severable from the rest of this agreement. And so Judge Chen read that as saying, well, look, Ascanian said that all workers have a right to bring a PAGA claim, even if they've signed an individual arbitration agreement, and since you're saying they can't do this, and you're saying this isn't severable, then the whole contract is void. And so what the Ninth Circuit did, Judge Richard Clifton wrote the opinion, he was looking at another part of the contract, and another part of the contract said that if it is invalidated that you uh, cannot individually arbitrate PAGA claims, then a court of competent jurisdiction would be able to adjudicate that PAGA claim. Clifton, he, he admits that this is not a, a slam dunk case on his part. He, he says the contract is hardly a model of clarity, but at the same time, he says that there is a presumption in favor of individual arbitration. Um, this has been hammered home by the U.S. Supreme Court for years now, and 
given that presumption, you know, something needs to be very explicit in the contract for the contract to, to, to be void. And, and he says there's this other part of the contract that says you can adjudicate PAGA claims. Uber did not totally shoot itself in the foot the way they phrased this arbitration agreement. And, and so therefore the, the agreement is valid. Okay, so then in this class action, which pertained to Uber potentially overreaching on its practice of background checks, the class here, it's been quite minimized. But the other action that you mentioned is still pending, the misclassification suit, which has received a fair amount more national prominence. That remains ongoing. District Judge Chen had disapproved a potential settlement between the parties for $84 million, saying it was insufficient. But say similar reasoning is applied by the panel um, from today in that misclassification suit. And uh, as a result, that class also splits up into a bunch of different individual arbitrations. It seems like there could be a possibility where Uber would pay out significantly less than that settlement, um, which had been deemed as too low just a few months ago. That's definitely a possibility. I mean, it seems like the value of the O'Connor misclassification case is now much lower because when the proposed settlement was announced, the Ninth Circuit had already agreed to review Judge Chen's arbitration orders, but you know they had not made a decision. And so at that time, the O'Connor class has 240,000 uh, plaintiffs in, in California. And so now there's a situation, I, I mentioned before, the number that 94% are bound by these arbitration agreements. Now there's a situation where the class could only be a few thousand drivers. And so because of that, obviously, the settlement value is, is much smaller. The $84 million, which uh, many people were very critical of Shannon Liss Reardon, the plaintiff lawyer in the O'Connor case, saying that she got way too low of a settlement. But now... Um, you know, ironically, it kind of looks like she had some foresight with that settlement and that that settlement is actually good in retrospect. And, and it's a shame for the plaintiffs that the Judge Chen re- rejected the initial settlement because now they probably have to come back with a smaller number. Or now certainly a good day in court for, for Uber. Matthew Blake, our labor reporter, thanks for being on the show to chat about it. Thanks a lot. It was fun. Again, that was Matt Blake. Reporter here on the Labor Beat he does excellent work and covers labor and employment issues and a good bit else. Now, before we get to my conversation with MC Sangaila, let me also remind you that CLE Credit is available for your having listened to this program. You can find a short true false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Let's hear now from MC Sangaila. Welcoming back to the program is MC Sangaila, a partner at Haynes and Boone. She does a, a wide range of appellate work, including business litigation and also working in the context of women's and girls' rights, both domestically and internationally. Ms. Ngaila, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Brian, and for having me. So the case here is a consolidated appeal, and I believe, broadly speaking, it, it asks the question as to whether employers that, that use toxic substances in their workplace are liable to family members of employees or potentially other third parties who are exposed to those toxic substances as the employees themselves convey them home on, on their clothing and their bodies. Is that roughly the issue here? Yes. I mean, these these cases, both Havel and Kessner, which were consolidated for argument, deal with the question of what's known as take-home asbestos exposures. A majority of jurisdictions to consider this question have rejected the viability of a duty in this context. That is, if there is an employee who does work with asbestos directly, can either premises owners or employers be liable 
for those at home or others they encounter who encounter also the asbestos dust they may bring home on their clothing. Sort of the quintessential plaintiff in these cases is the wife who washed her husband's clothes when he came home from work that had some lingering asbestos dust on it. But as these two cases show themselves, there can also be different contexts in which people can make these claims. The issue of duty as opposed to the issue of liability, that's a question for the court, right? They say in these circumstances there is a duty, then it's up to the jury to decide whether there's liability in the various different cases. Yeah, and and that's how both of these cases came up on a non-suit and then on a summary judgment motion, because duty is a legal question. It, it certainly is based on the facts of a particular case as well, but largely whether there's a duty is dependent on a host of, of factors that the Supreme Court's already identified in, in Roland v. Christian and is largely a public policy assessment by the court about whether you know it makes sense to have a defendant have a duty in a particular case. And so you're right, that's not a factual question, and that's why this is also from a from a defendant's standpoint, this is an important case because if there is no duty, then it's possible to uh, end a case with a motion that's determined as a matter of law by the trial court, perhaps early in the case. If it's a factual question, if there is legally a duty, but then there's, there's questions with regard to other aspects of liability that would go to a jury, then, then that means that defendants cannot get out of the case much earlier and would have to stay in and, and defend possible until trial, which would mean a much more expensive proposition for defendants and potentially difficult uh, situation for the courts themselves, which already have quite a bit of these asbestos cases, these particular types of, of cases, no, because the take-home cases have not been acknowledged by a lot of courts, but direct exposure to asbestos itself, as we mentioned in our amicus briefs in these cases, already there's quite a bit of asbestos litigation in California courts. This would be a whole new arena of asbestos litigation if the duty is recognized. Maybe very briefly, we could just touch on these individual cases that have been consolidated now. The first one was Kessner versus Superior Court of Alameda. The real party and in interest there was... Um, a defendant company called Abex, which I think operated a factory producing um, brake mm-hmm. parts or something along those lines. And the plaintiff here worked there. And or I'm sorry, the, the plaintiff's uncle here in this case worked at that factory and came home and would occasionally encounter his nephew, who subsequently a generation or so later developed mesothelioma and brings suit. The first appellate district, which weighed in on this case, outlined some of those Roland v. Christian factors that you've, you've hinted at. It particularly emphasized a couple of different ones. Could you tell me some of those factors, specifically some of the ones the courts tend to emphasize most prominently? You know, most prominently and certainly the one that plaintiffs focus on the most is foreseeability. So foreseeability of harm to the plaintiff and the degree of certainty that the plaintiff suffered injury and then um, the closeness of the connection between the defendant's conduct and the injury and the moral blame attached to the defendant's conduct and policies of preventing future harm and the extent of the burden on the defendant and the consequences to the community of imposing a duty and the availability cost and prevalence of insurance for the risk involved. So you can see the, the, the questions move out from something very specific, you know, more specific to this case and the circumstances of the case out towards the impact beyond the parties, impact on the community at large and larger policies having to do with whether 
it's possible to gain some kind of insurance from this risk, or are you are you placing a bunch of uninsurable risk on various companies? But the the factors, while they are focused on foreseeability, it also takes into account a number of other concerns and just larger policy concerns about imposing a duty at all in a more general way. Uh, now, in this first appellate district opinion, they mentioned some, some very similar precedent, a case called Campbell v. Ford, where there was some asbestos exposure to a third party. In that case, the court found that there was no duty to that third party. Um, right. But of course, here, the first appellate district found a duty. How did they distinguish this case from, from Campbell? Well, Campbell really talked about the, the concerns with being able to cabin this duty. You know, how can you figure out how are you going to limit this or not limit limit this duty? And how many people is this duty going to apply to? Obviously, the first district needs to do something with Campbell because it's going to decide something different from Campbell. And, you know, in, in doing that, they just took a really a different, a really just different view of this particular case. They said, no, harm to others resulting from secondary exposure to asbestos dust is not unpredictable. And gee, moral blame tends to support extension of an employer's responsibility um, more than its employees as well. So I think that, you know, the, the employment situation was important to the to the first district as well. They seem to to emphasize, as makes sense, the, the Roland factors that uh, supported the finding of duty here. It also sounded like they made some distinction between the fact that Campbell was a premises liability case um, like Haver in the second appellate district um, and that the the Kessner case was a products liability case, although both fall under general negligence principles for the most part. Is there a meaningful distinction between a premises liability claim and a, and a products liability claim? There is some distinction, and that distinction certainly came up at argument before the Supreme Court as well. Some of that goes to the weighing of the Roland factors in terms of, of how much of a, a role a defendant had in terms of their moral blame and their role with regard to the asbestos the third party was exposed to. If you have a situation like, like Haver, where you're dealing with the, the railroad company that that has asbestos in the brakes of its locomotive, but it didn't. That just happened to be the fact of what was in brakes in its locomotive. It wasn't manufacturing them, and it wasn't asking its employees to to create those brakes. They already existed there. Somebody else did that. Whereas in Kuzner, as you mentioned, hey, you know, they were actually making some of those brakes there at the at the premises, and somehow could be seen as as having some additional role and additional blame, perhaps in letting people, the employees in the first instance, have exposure to that. Okay, so yeah, being the party that's in fact producing those products that might contain the toxic substances turns up the, the moral blame knob a little bit in the, that round analysis. Yeah, and then it's also really interesting between these two cases. So if you're concerned about the scope of potential folks who, could, who are exposed who could bring claims, you have... A mixture here of those types of plaintiffs between Haver and Kuzner. So in Kuzner, you have someone who is more remote, right? You have uh, someone who, as a child, visited his aunt and uncle once, you know, once or twice a week, and then he'd visit longer at other times. But then you have a spouse in Haver. So you have someone who is more closely related and, and in the household much more than you do in Haver, but you have potentially a defendant who, who could be seen as 
being more intertwined with the, with the product that caused the harm than you do with the railway. So you've kind of got the, the opposite sort of positive negative in each of these cases are kind of mixed. In that second appellate district opinion, it made pretty short work of, of the claim. They also regarded the, the precedent of Campbell and essentially said, you know, Campbell controls and that's the end of the story. As we've touched on, there's some differences between the two cases in terms of one being products liability based and one being premises liability based. But the the California Supreme Court grants review of these cases together and and asks sort of one unifying question, essentially just whether there's a duty to these third party folks who are exposed, doesn't say, in the case of premises liability or in the case of products liability. Do you think the California Supreme Court regards these these two cases as pretty much the same or does do you think they might see some meaningful differences and so could potentially rule differently. There are a couple of um, reasons the court would take both of them and consolidate them, right? Uh, one is clearly they raise the same broad issue of, of liability to third parties. So this whole take-home asbestos type of claim is raised equally in both of them. But each presents you know, a slightly different scenario of who those plaintiffs might be if there's if, there, if a duty is found. And so by having both of those scenarios and also the two, you know, different types of defendants you could have in these cases. And by having those together, it provides the Supreme Court with a much broader view in which to assess whether there should be a duty and how that duty should be defined. Because in these cases, they're making policy assessments. They're making policy assessments for the state about whether we should recognize a duty in these general types of cases. And then, as the court is always concerned, it's always concerned with its impact beyond the particular facts in its case, right? Like, we're deciding it on this set of facts, but we want to, to, in doing that, we want to think about the broader impact on a range of cases and a range of situations. And by having two real-life situations for them to look at, I, I think it gives them more uh, security in in making that assessment about whether there's a duty, because it's not just hypothetical. They actually have two different situations in front of them. That It gives them the opportunity to feel that they've more fully vetted the circumstances in which this duty might arise, and that, that it gives them a better idea of what that duty should look like. If they, if they create it, how are they going to define it? And, um, you know, who could be affected by this, both defendant-wise and plaintiff-wise. So I, I think there's, there's that benefit, in particularly in a case like this, where they are clearly in the policymaking role. Okay, well, maybe getting into the policy concerns a bit, the, the biggest one cited by parties that, that argue that there should not be a duty in these circumstances uh, seem to be of the, the slippery slope line-drawing variety, that if you impose a duty here where um, the plaintiff was a nephew and, and a wife, then are we sure that a line could be drawn there with them? Or would a line have to be drawn, you know, say another plaintiff came along who came in contact with that wife or that nephew, say, you know, at the, the playground or something, then could they be plaintiffs? Um, and so the, the potential arises that it'd be tough to, to cabin the duty as you say, of course, on the other side, some will argue that, well, if, if people are in fact harmed by these defendants, it doesn't seem terribly wrong for the defendants to compensate them for that harm. Are those sort of roughly the, the competing issues? And, and what do you think are the merits of the two of them? Okay, I think those are certainly the two issues, as I said, with regard to the factors that relate 
directly to the parties and the particular claims involved. But there are a lot of other other things that work here um, in the the, the roll-in factors, aside from, uh, you know, even moving out to moral blame of the particular defendant and things like that. But moving beyond that is the impact on the impact on the community as well as the defendant uh, or potential defendants in terms of extending this liability um, and whether that risk is insurable and how foreseeable, um, you know, particular plaintiffs are as well. And all of those elements go beyond, really beyond the particular claims in the case and the particular parties and more to okay, if we recognize a duty, that means there's going to be a number of these cases filed um, in our courts. How is that going to impact our court system, which is already you know, having uh, fiscal problems and already has its fair share, more than its fair share, of asbestos cases? And perhaps, you know, in light of the Supreme Court's recent ruling in Bristol-Myers, might have even more um, uh, certain types of cases from folks who, who are not California residents. And you know what is the combined effect of all of that, and and what is the what is the larger effect of recognizing recognizing these claims, even if we think that it's foreseeable in a particular case, or even if we do feel badly for a particular type of plaintiff, is the is the harm or uncertainty or risk to the larger justice system and access to justice just just too much to uh, to extend? Um, a claim to these people, or or is it not? Are we okay with that? Um, and you know that's that's the uh, that's what you get for doing justice. Is you know sometimes we have a burden on our courts, and we just have to you know kind of man up and expect that and and, uh, and meet that challenge. But certainly there are, there are many more uh, issues outside from the concerns about the particular fairness between the individual parties and the, the individual claims. And a lot of those came up at argument as well. Again, uh, I know um, Ted, Ted Boutros mentioned uh, quite a bit the moral blame, uh, you know, in his case was low and there's no insurance available at all for this kind of risk in his situation. And, um, and the Chief Justice responded to that by saying, okay, I understand your point, um, you know, and... E- your point being there should be no duty and you don't need Roland because of these larger concerns. But even if the Roland factors were met, there are other concerns about why there um, shouldn't be liability here, including, um, you know, disproportionate liability based on fault, um, floodgates concerns, and, um, you know, previous precedent of the Supreme Court, O'Neill versus Franco, saying, you know, you're generally not liable for some other per- person's conduct, um, and so in certainly in the BNSF situation, in the um, in the Haver situation, it, he would be responsible for somebody else putting asbestos in those brakes. So all of those things come up because the court knows that it's making this decision for many you know, many more people beyond just the parties in front of it. Yeah, foreseeability and, and causation. In, in these yeah. particular instances, are not are just sort of just scratching the surface. Yeah, that's just kind of that's part of the analysis. You're just kind of it's almost like you focus in on the particular uh, parts of the, the the case with a very focused lens, and then you move out from that, saying, "Okay, what would the impact be on 
you know, many more parties like this, uh, the court system, society, what would that impact be of imposing a duty? Sort of yeah. narrowing in and then bringing it out to like 360, 360 degree view of the impact of, of making that decision. Yeah, I did think the timing was interesting. These oral arguments come up a few weeks after the Bristol-Myers Squibb, or I think just a week after the Bristol-Myers Squibb decision that you cite where the court renders a pretty broad construal of personal jurisdiction and and allows um, non-resident plaintiffs to sue non-resident uh, drug manufacturers in that case. Um, right. How much of that is in the court's mind when they're hearing these oral arguments? You said the point is raised that you can only open the courtroom door so far. There are just hard logistical constraints, the courts can only hear so many cases. Yeah, I mean, I think, I would think that has to be in their minds because they did just decide that case. Um, And we're deciding it at a time they're working at this case for for argument. And so I I wouldn't be surprised if that that plays some role in some of the um, the justices' thinking as well. You're not just expanding a duty, how much do you expand that duty? And and given the personal jurisdiction decision that we just made, you know, how many plaintiffs really are we opening the courtroom doors to for perhaps many more um, than, than, than just a decision to extend the, the duty itself? Having had a chance to, to listen to some of the oral arguments in this case, do you have a sense um, as to how the court feels about these consolidated cases as to um, whether they might find a duty, and if so, where they might draw the line of, of that duty? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I, I, I did hear um, the argument in, in Haver and, and, and a portion of, of Kessner, um, but at least in the, the Haver argument, it seemed pretty clear that there were... M- Many um, justices, probably most clearly Lou uh, Kruger and Cuellar, who you know may have been to some extent testing the levels and the definition of a duty, but did not seem closed at all to there being a duty, at least in one of these cases. Um, so, and some of Lou's questions indicated that he didn't see that there was some any difference between the premises liability situation and uh, and the Kessner situation. But the Chief Justice did pretty clearly, you know, reiterate those distinctions. And so she seems to be perhaps going the other way. So it's possible that they could reach different decisions in the two cases. By the, the uh, by analyzing the different the factors in Roland and even extra Roland factors somewhat differently, and and they could make this distinction based on the the premises liability as opposed to the more you know particular uh, details of whether it's someone who lives in the household all the time or not. Um, it, it, it could be that that's how the distinction goes down, or it could be that they don't make any distinction at all and. And, and find uh, that there is some kind of, there is a duty in both circumstances. But at least from the tenor of oral argument, it, it, it did not seem that they were, uh, at least the majority of them, were, you know, really taken with the larger policy arguments that the, that the defendants would largely make, which is, hey, you know, you're really um, expanding this potential liability in, in a really 
really big way <laughs> for defendants and the impact of that on the companies involved and also on the court system and the residual impact uh, of access to justice of others who are trying to get their cases before the courts that are clogged with asbestos uh, cases, that those things seem to resonate as much as as some of the more, you know, individual rolling factors that relate to the plaintiff and the defendant and the, the claims in the case. So, you know, it, they could surprise us, but but maybe not. Um, but I, I it looks to be headed at least towards one of the cases there being a finding of, of duty. How that duty is defined, it may be the way that Justice Liu defines it, which is, you know, anyone in the household, which, like I said, if that's the case, then then um, Kesner would not recover, um, at least if it's a full-time household is what they're talking about. But then if they make a distinction based on, you know, premises liability, there's no claim, but the other situation there might be, well, then that would mean that, you know, Haber's out of luck, but Kesner might be okay as long as the definition of the potential folks you owe a duty to includes someone who's part-time in the household. Could be split in some way, one of those two ways. What would be the potential biggest impact for for attorneys in the, the cohort of defense um, counsel in the state of California, which you're, um, are one, if um, there is a finding of duty, it's just so now in all these cases or in many of these cases, there will have to be factual determinations made and just, it's just a lot a lot more work for defense attorneys. Well, and that was, that was clearly um, um, discussed by um, both Haber and uh, both counsel for BNSF and for Numo ABEX, that argument as well, which is, you know, when you're talking about uh, imposing a duty, then that automatically means you need to go into um, discovery and move forward towards factual assessments in a case, which means you're going to stay in a case a lot longer as a defendant, and you're going to have to spend a lot more to defend it, which is going to encourage you to try to resolve it earlier if you can. To you know, to prevent those expenses. Um, on the other hand, if you you want to take an institutional stand, it's going to be an expensive stand to take because you're going to have to have a lot more fortitude to stay in the case all the way um, all the way to a jury verdict and beyond. And certainly have an impact on the, the defendants in the cases. I mean, there there are people that those companies employ. There are you know a bunch of other people who will be affected if if those um, if those companies have to pay a lot of money, uh, both to defend and and to uh, provide recovery to plaintiffs in these cases, so okay, well, it certainly seems like quite a bit is at stake. Then um, we'll be very interested to see how the court comes down here over the next uh, few weeks. Uh, Ms. Sankala, thanks very much for being on the podcast to discuss the case with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate it as well. It's always fun to talk to you. Once more, that was MC Sangaila, a partner with Haynes and Boone. We'll move now to my discussion with Anna Rose Matheson. We're very happy to welcome back to the program Anna Rose Matheson, a partner with the California Appellate Law Group, a boutique appellate firm in San Francisco, where she handles a wide variety of appeals, some federal and some state. She's an apt guest to have on the podcast for a Supreme Court coverage as she was a clerk for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ms. Matheson, welcome back to the program. Wonderful to be here. 
We're chatting today about the case of Rodriguez versus Jennings lined up on the Supreme Court docket for its upcoming term, a very interesting immigration law case that deals with some some pretty weighty issues, in particular a rather bedrock principle undergirding American democracy to wit the due process required before the government can deprive folks of, of their freedom. Um, here, I think the question essentially is whether the government can detain um, sort of indefinitely and without certain timely judicial hearings non-citizens who might be subject to removal, to deportation, and who are awaiting the culmination of their removal proceedings, which, of course, might culminate with them being found subject to removal, but might also culminate with them being found able to remain in the United States. Um, So essentially, the question needs to be, what type of due process, what sort of judicial processes must be afforded this particular class of of non-citizens? Are those the broad strokes here? Exactly. And the case has a pretty broad reach. Federal authorities detain more than 400,000 individuals over the course of a year and about 33,000 individuals in immigration detention on any given day. And so the class members in this case spent an average of over a year in immigration detention, and some spent more than two years. Backing up to the beginning of this action, it was brought by a number of similarly situated non-citizens who had been or were at the time detained. Their initial class certification petition was denied, but that denial was reversed on appeal to the Ninth Circuit, and so the district court ended up certifying the class. Could you tell me specifically how the members of the class were defined so we have a better sense of who we're talking about? And then perhaps you could tell me what relief exactly they were seeking from the district court. So the district court certified a class of all non-citizens within the Central District of California, so only ones within that district court's jurisdiction. But within that district, all those who are or were detained for more than six months pursuant to one of the general immigration detention statutes um, and had not been detained pursuant to a national security detention statute and had not been afforded a hearing to determine whether their detention is justified. So basically a broad class of those detained for more than six months without a hearing pursuant to an immigration detention statute. The class members sought and were eventually granted by the district court an injunction requiring the government to give them a bond hearing before an immigration judge if they're subject to prolonged detention. Um, And prolonged for these purposes means more than six months. And at that hearing, that, that bond hearing that the government now has to give them, the government must prove by clear and convincing evidence that the detainee is a flight risk or a danger to the community to justify the denial of bond. So essentially they must have a, a day in court for the government to tell them why they're being held. Exactly. And to show not just why they're being held, but that there's a good reason to hold them. I think it's assumed for many of these that there is some sort of reason to hold them, but the government actually has to prove that releasing them would cause some sort of problem. There'd be a slight risk or a danger to the community. It might be important to note here, before we get too much further, you mentioned that these are folks that have been detained under a range of different immigration law statutes, a few different ones. As a result of those different laws, I think there were four subclasses that were identified within um, this class. Can you tell me a bit about the the subclasses? It seems like they're generally divided along lines of of how the folks came to be in, in custody of the government. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So each of the four subclasses is based on uh, a class detained under a different immigration detention statute. So, for instance, there was a 1226C subclass, and that covered people who were already in the country 
but then released from incarceration for a criminal offense that would render them deportable. Similarly, the 1225B subclass applied to those who were stopped at the border. And so that class has arguably fewer rights because the they had not actually entered American soil yet. Um, so each of these different subclasses is a different immigration detention statute, and each involves somewhat different considerations. But the situation that folks find themselves in essentially is largely the same. They're detained awaiting potential removal and looking to receive greater due process. What was the due process to which they were entitled before they sought this injection? What, what sort of processes were they afforded? Not, not much. So civil immigration detainees are treated pretty much like criminal serving time. They're typically housed in jails with shared cells, not much privacy, not much access to outdoor spaces. Most of the subclasses had very limited review rights. Some could seek review to show they were not in the broad category subject to deportation. For instance, they could show they, in fact, were a citizen, not a non-citizen, and the feds just grabbed the wrong John Smith. But they had really limited ability to pursue other types of claims. For instance, a claim that that was something similar to what we typically think of as a bail proceeding. You can let me out and I won't hurt anyone. I won't flee. I'll still be here when you need to remove me. So the class is certified and and then the district court issues a, a preliminary injunction, which is appealed and then affirmed by the Ninth Circuit. And eventually the the district court issues a, a permanent injunction, which goes up again to the Ninth Circuit and, and now will be reviewed by the U.S. Supreme Court. What, what were the terms of that permanent injunction? The permanent injunction applied to class members detained under any of these four civil immigration detention statutes that we've been discussing, and it requires the government to provide each detainee with a bond hearing by the 195th day of detention. So it's about six months. The bond hearings must occur automatically. That is, There's not a burden on the detained person to request a hearing. The government simply has to set it up and provide for that hearing. And at those hearings, the government bears the burden of proving by clear and convincing evidence that the detainee is a flight risk or a danger to the community to justify the denial of the bond. Okay, so that sounds like a fair amount of what the class members had sought. As the Ninth Circuit notes, they're there were a few things that the injunction did not provide for. What, uh, what were a couple of those things? The district court didn't order the immigration judges to consider the length of the detention. So it wasn't something that would be considered whether or not to continue holding the detainee if they'd been detained for six months or two years and six months. That length didn't figure into the calculus. Similarly, there weren't additional hearings after the first one. So the district court's permanent injunction said there must be a hearing after six months. But if the detainee was still there six months later, they didn't get another hearing. And the class members cross-appealed on these issues. So now the permanent injunction is is cross-appealed, as you said, before the Ninth Circuit. And there, in in getting into its analysis, the, the appellate panel noted that the Supreme Court has provided some guidance here, but it called it piecemeal. Um, Can you take me through what the relevant precedent is here from from the country's high court? There's really two key Supreme Court cases here, and they're decided just two years apart. So first, there's a 2001 case called Zavidas. And in that case, the Supreme Court held 
a statute permitting indefinite detention of an alien would raise a serious constitutional problem. So the court said that and thus construed the statute at issue there to impose a reasonable time limit, which it said was six months. Six months, the court said that's probably a reasonable point to detain, but if it was longer than that, it would raise constitutional questions, so we're going to just pretend like that limit is in the statute itself. So then, just a couple of years later, in the Demore case, the court looks at a statute dealing with mandatory detention for non-citizens convicted of crimes, and in that case, the court held mandatory detention was okay, and the court pointed to as justification for that the fact that the removal proceedings had a definite endpoint. They were taking the aliens out of the country and looked at statistics the government had provided showing that these periods of detention were generally less than 90 days. So that is, they're less than three months. And that made the court say, it's fine to have this mandatory detention. Importantly, though, and to more, Justice Kennedy concurred to say that lawful permanent residents should get a hearing if a detention becomes unreasonable or unjustified. Moving along in the Ninth Circuit opinion, they, they end up providing a partial affirmance and, and a partial reversal. So could you tell me what uh, what processes the Ninth Circuit did guarantee and, and to whom? Sure. And it was pretty much a total loss for the government in the Ninth Circuit. So the Ninth Circuit agreed with the district court that bond hearings were required for three of the four subclasses. Um, for the fourth class, it held there was actually no one in it looking at the terms of the way the district court had defined that subclass, um, but held that for everyone who was actually properly a class member, they were entitled to a hearing. They also agreed with the plaintiffs that the government bore the burden of proof by clear and convincing evidence at that hearing, and the court held that the immigration judge must consider the length of the detention, and as detention gets longer, that is a factor weighing in favor of release on bond. And the court held that the government must automatically provide the hearings. That is not simply wait until the alien requests it. And that the government must give additional hearings every six months. So pretty much the only thing the government got was that there's no need for the immigration judge to consider the likelihood of deportation in deciding whether or not to release the aliens, but it's not even clear how that cuts. Pretty much everything else was a win for the plaintiffs. Okay, so this case kicks up to to the U.S. Supreme Court, which will analyze sort of two discrete issues as you've been laying them out. One pertains to the, the frequency with which these detainees must receive bond hearings, whether it needs to be once every six months or not. And um, the other issue, as, as you touched on, is the, the level of evidence that the government must provide um, to justify the uh, continued detention. Let's start first with that that first issue. In your opinion, what are the strongest arguments that the sides will bring to bear as to the frequency of the hearing point? The government will argue that once you have one hearing, that's plenty. The process usually requires a hearing, but it doesn't usually require multiple repeated hearings. Um, the government will also point out that when you're considering the likelihood of flight or danger to community, that's not that likely to change while the person is in detention. So it's it's unlikely to significantly shift 
um, the facts just based on six months or so. And these repeated hearings are a huge drain on resources. The counter argument to that, though, is as the time drags on and these people are held in detention without any resolution, um, and they're simply held not pursuant to any criminal charges, just pursuant to a statute authorizing their detention before removal, essentially that imposition on their liberty should have a higher burden for the government to justify. And since as the Ninth Circuit held, if, if and this continues to be true, that the length of time they've been held should be considered in that hearing, then it makes sense to have a hearing every six months as that amount of time they've been in this detention increases. Maybe one other point related to the, the frequency of the hearings issue. The Supreme Court divided two of the subclasses into different questions upon which it granted cert, and essentially asked that same question as to the two different classes, uh, two different subclasses. What uh, what were the, those two specific subclasses, and do you think the, the court views them meaningfully differently such that they, they might say, you know, this this group, this subclass, doesn't necessarily need as frequent uh, of hearings as, as this other subclass? Well, so that's actually the way the petition written by the government framed the question. Okay. So the Supreme Court usually just grants the questions as presented in the petition for certiorari. It, it can and does occasionally rewrite the questions, but you can't necessarily assume anything from the fact it didn't change it and just adopted the question presented by the government. But still more broadly, I think there really will be a different analysis for these different subclasses because there are different considerations and policy interests at play. So one of them, the 1226C subclass, is mandatory detention for non-citizens with deportable criminal offenses, while the other subclass, 1225B, is for applicants for admission who are stopped at the border. Um, and so under some of the kind of traditional rules, there's an, something called an entry fiction doctrine where when someone is stopped at the border, even though they are then taken into the U.S. on U.S. property to be detained, because they were stopped at the border, this entry fiction holds, they're not really in the country. Um, and kind of traditionally, folks who aren't really in the country don't have as many rights under the due process clause as people who are legally here. So I do certainly think that there's a chance the court will look at the lawful permanent residents who had been here but then are being held after criminal offenses and might think that those folks have more due process protections than people who are stuck at the border and were not actually in the country before these proceedings began. The second issue to be considered by the, the high court, the issue of the level of evidence required of the government, and essentially the, the government says the, the clear and convincing standard is too high of a burden. What uh, what are the competing arguments on this point? Right, well, so the government can argue that, look, this is, this is not a criminal case. The court is essentially reading in this hearing requirement in the statute. The statute don't provide for this sort of hearing, and the court is simply implying them to make sure the statutes are constitutional. Then we could say, look, if you're just making up a hearing requirement, you shouldn't make one up and put a high burden on us, too. That's simply not fair or sensible. Um, and, and the standard here is, is certainly higher than a typical civil case where the standard is predominance 
here the government must prove by clear and convincing evidence. So it's not as high as beyond a reasonable doubt, but it is still a substantial burden. The counter argument is that this is a deprivation of liberty, like a criminal case. Due process should require a, a hearing, and the government really should be put to some proof. And there is some of kind of the facts thrown out in the petition really, I think, are going to be compelling to the justices here. There's a number of cases where these immigration officers just made stupid mistakes, like mixing up countries, getting Ethiopia and Somalia mixed up apparently happens relatively frequently, um, or just getting the wrong file and saying, oh, this person gets held in custody. Um, and people can end up getting held in custody, say, after they serve a one to three month sentence for a minor drug possession charge, then then be held in this sort of custody for one to three years. And that's kind of significant deprivation on liberty, I think, is is going to be relatively compelling to the court. Like you say, the standard burden of proof in a civil proceeding is preponderance, but also in a typical civil proceeding, personal liberty doesn't hinge upon the determination of some, some question very often. Exactly. Okay, one thought that I had in reading through this opinion, and it, it seemed like one that the Ninth Circuit also raised in its its ruling, was some, some doubt as to the true burden this place was upon the government. The Ninth Circuit said, you know, we're not saying all these people need to be released and, and, and sent home while they await the conclusion of their removal proceedings. We're just saying that there has to be occasional hearings where some evidence is presented. In, in your opinion, how ponderous of a burden is this upon the government, these regular every six-month hearings? It does just require a hearing. But it's a hearing where the government bears the burden of showing the alien is a flight risk or a danger to the community. And that's a much more difficult showing than just showing they meet the requirements for removal. You know, they have committed X crime or they are not a citizen. Instead, the government has to make a very specific showing about that person's contacts um, and history and potential for dangerousness. A lot of these folks probably aren't at all danger to the community or flight risks. Many of them have been here since they were kids have families and have jobs. So I suspect this actually will be difficult for the government to show in a number of cases. Of course, as one might think, if even though it is difficult to show, um, if the court thinks you know you have to have a good reason to, to continue to detain these folks, and it's difficult to, to prove that good reason, well, maybe you know, the point is they, they shouldn't necessarily be, be detained, all of them. Exactly. And, and of course, it's important to note, it's not they're not saying that you have to let the person go and just let them remain in the country indefinitely. Right. They're being released on bond, and then we'll have to report when the government does finally get its act together to deport them or remove them or continue future proceedings. Just simply, they can't be held in effectively jail-like conditions until that point. One other quirk in this case, an event that happened just a couple of weeks ago was the Department of Justice disclosed to the U.S. Supreme Court that in one of those previous immigration cases that you, you touched on earlier, Damore, it had potentially miscalculated um, the amount of time that, that, that folks spent in detention. Um, you know, that case is, has long passed, but does the fact that the Department of Justice is now acknowledging to the U.S. Supreme Court that it you know, might have made some errors in what it disclosed to the court in terms of how long people spend in detention um, could be in, on the minds of justices in, in this case? I think it certainly will be on their minds. Um, in that case, and that was one of the 
the two critical precedents, the SG has now reported that a different agency had provided it numbers that were just wildly miscalculated um, over a decade ago. And the SG relied on those and submitted them to the court, and the court in turn relied on those statistics. The statistics didn't all cut the same direction. That is, it, it wasn't simply underestimating the amount of time in detention. Um, but there certainly were points where the statistics did understate the amount of the detention. Um, so much of the Solicitor General actually suggested to the court that it might want to amend its opinion that was had been issued more than a decade before, which is uh, quite an unusual step. I think this letter certainly will be on the minds of the justices. It will, to some degree, make the justices a little bit more skeptical of the government's arguments. And the government's attorneys are always incredibly well prepared and take their ethical obligations to the court incredibly seriously. But I think this will give the justices some pause and say, yes, they, you know, the government might say it is, you know, trying to, you know, dot its I's and cross its T's here. But we do really need to look at the fact that they're holding thousands and thousands of people in custody for extended periods without any sort of hearing or ability to determine whether or not it makes sense to hold these people longer. So I, I certainly do think that will be on the minds of the justices as they resolve this case. Well, as you say, certainly a case that will have an impact on a, a wide number of folks in the country Rodriguez vs. Jennings here, upcoming on the next Supreme Court. Docket Ms. Anna Rose Matheson of the California Appellate Law Group, thanks very much for discussing it with us on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Brian. And with that, our program for September 9th, 2016 is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity one more time to tender sincere gratitude to both my guests, Anna Rose Matheson of the California Appellate Law Group and MC Sangaila, Paynes and Boone. Thanks also to Matt Blake, our labor reporter, and other members of our production staff here, including Ellen Ireland, Dominic Prakasa, Nick Sonnenberg, and of course our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.